Greetings friends and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker and this week we're looking at another sermon by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, number 585 in the sequence 584 through to 590, the sermons that we're reading day by day this week. If you want to follow along with our weekly reading scheme, you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon and see what we're doing sometimes, usually day by day. If a daily sermon is too much, then you can follow along with a weekly featured sermon where we try and select something that is representative of the, the balance of Spurgeon's ministry. And this week, the featured sermon is 585. A mystery, saints sorrowing, and Jesus glad. Saints sorrowing and Jesus glad. The text for the sermon is from John chapter 11, when Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad that for you, for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. It was preached on the 7th of August, 1864, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and it is, of course, taken from the history of the, the death and then the resurrection or the uh, reviving of Lazarus, uh, the man from Bethany. The preacher begins with a, uh, a simple introduction, introducing the history of the event, uh, the friendship between the Lord Jesus and uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, his sisters, the sickness then that uh, Lazarus uh, succumbed to and the call that went out that Jesus might be able to go and help Lord behold he whom you love is sick and yet the Lord Jesus uh, does not come when they hoped that he would and Lazarus ultimately dies even though the Lord has said that the sickness was not unto death and so uh, now uh, when he arrives uh, Lazarus has already been buried uh, Martha and Mary are in deep distress. Uh, perhaps uh, up until the point of death even, they had hoped that there might be hope, but now it seems uh, that hope has been lost. Oh, sorrowful mystery that the pity of such a tender saviour should sink so far below their plumb line to gauge, or his mercy should range so high beyond their power to reach. And so our Lord then is talking of the death of his friend and it's important that we remember from the outset the love that the Lord has for Lazarus and his sisters. And what is surprising is that Jesus doesn't say, I regret that I've waited so long. He doesn't say I should have hastened, but even now it's not too late. What he actually says is, I am glad that I was not there. And Spurgeon says, isn't that word out of place? By this time, Lazarus is rotting in the tomb and his body smells and the Saviour is glad. Mary and Martha are weeping their eyes out for sorrow and their friend is glad. What is it that lies behind this mystery, as Spurgeon describes it, of saints sorrowing and Jesus glad? Well, we have before us the plain principle that our Lord in his infinite wisdom and superabundant love sets so high a value upon his people's faith that he will not screen them from those trials by which faith is strengthened. Let us then, says the preacher, try to press the wine of consolation from the cluster of the text. And he's going to gather three cups of good juice as it flows from the wine press of meditation. First of all, 
Jesus Christ was glad that the trial had come for the strengthening of the faith of the apostles. Secondly, for the strengthening of the faith of the family. And thirdly, for giving faith to others. Because he points out that uh, we'll also find that many of the Jews who came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. So then, Jesus Christ designed the death of Lazarus and his after-resurrection for the strengthening of the faith of the apostles. And this acted two ways. Not only would the trial itself tend to strengthen their faith, but the remarkable deliverance which Christ gave to them out of it would certainly minister to the growth of their confidence. So, the trial itself would certainly tend to increase the apostles' faith. Faith untried may be true faith, but it is sure to be little faith. I believe in the existence of faith in men who have no trials, says Spurgeon, but that's as far as I can go. His point is that untried faith, untested faith, a faith that has not been exercised by trials, is always small in stature and is likely to remain so for as long as it does not suffer trials. It is tried and tested faith which brings experience, and experience makes religion become more real to those who have had it. You don't know your own weakness until you've been through the trial, and you don't know God's strength until he has supported you in your weakness in that trial. So, says Spurgeon, faith increases in solidity, assurance and intensity the more she is exercised with tribulation and the more she has been cast down and lifted up again. And it may be asked then, what is the method by which trial strengthens faith? And Spurgeon's going to give us here now various answers to that question. First of all, trial takes away many of the impediments or obstacles of faith. It clears a pathway to God by cutting down the thick trees of earthly comforts. It sends us running to God and it takes away that which would hold us back from him. Then affliction is of small service to, is of no small service to faith when it exposes the weakness of the creature. It reminds us that we cannot rely on ourselves or on others and so it stirs up faith and trust in God himself. The emptiness of the creature is a lesson we're slow to learn and we must have it whipped into us by the rod of affliction. But learned it must be, or else faith can never attain to eminence. Furthermore, trial is of special service to faith when it drives her to God. He says himself that it's his own confession, when my soul is happy and things prosper, I do not as a rule live so near to God as I do in the midst of shame and contempt and casting down of spirit. And then, trial has a hardening effect upon faith, and hardening here is a good thing. It, it tempers it, it toughens up our faith. Spurgeon says, if you want to ruin your son, never let him know a hardship. Coddle him, make life easy for him, always work around his demands. When he is a child, carry him in your arms. When he becomes a youth, still dandle him. When he becomes a man, still dry nurse him, and you will succeed in producing an arrant fool. If you want to prevent his being made useful in the world, guard him from every kind of toil. Do not suffer him, do not allow him to struggle. Wipe the sweat from his dainty brow and say, Dear child, you shall never have another task so arduous. Pity him when he ought to be punished. Supply all his wishes, avert all disappointments, prevent all troubles, and you will surely tutor him to be a reprobate and break your heart. 
but put him where he must work, expose him to difficulties, purposely throw him into peril, and in this way you shall make him a man, and when he comes to do man's work and to bear man's trials, he shall be fit for either. Well, says Spurgeon, if that's the way you ruin your son, it's also the way that you would ruin your faith. God does not daintily cradle his children when they ought to run alone, and when they begin to run he's not always putting out his finger for them to lean on, but he lets them tumble down to the cutting of their knees, because then they will walk more carefully by and by, and learn to stand upright by the strength which faith confers upon them. Now, in our day and age I'm uh, not sure anybody wants to actually take Spurgeon's parenting advice, but I think there's a great deal of wisdom in what he has to say. If we coddle our children, they will remain childish and they will never learn to stand on their own two feet. If we're always over-protecting them, if we, we never deal with their, with their sins or allow them to uh, exercise themselves to maturity, then they will go on sinning and they will never really grow up. And in the same way, faith that is not exercised, that is not put to the test, will remain feeble. So then Christ was glad because his disciples would be blessed by trouble. Jesus Christ does sympathise with his people. Spurgeon insists upon that, but still he does it wisely. He is glad that trials come upon us because by them we learn to believe more deeply and more truly. But furthermore, not only the trial itself, but the deliverance which eventually came from the trial in the resurrection of Lazarus was also calculated to strengthen the faith of the apostles. It taught them that at the worst, Christ can work. What a plight were they now in? Here was a case come to the very worst. Lazarus isn't just dead, he's buried and his body has become putrid. And yet, Christ Jesus raises him from the dead. Is there anything then that Christ cannot do? Is there any blessing that the Lord Christ cannot bestow? Then again, divine sympathy became more manifest. They saw the depth of his sorrows. They saw the grief of his heart. They, they appreciated his love and affection. And then they had not just divine sympathy, but divine power exercised. Christ simply says, Lazarus, come forth, and death can hold the captive no longer. Now, didn't this confirm the faith of the apostles? Wasn't this just what they were going to need in days to come? When they were in prison, when they went forth to preach to sinners, when they were speaking to people debauched and depraved and immoral, when they went into the midst of the worst conditions of human nature, they knew that the corpse had been brought back at the life of the word of Jesus Christ. And many of the apostolic churches were far gone. They had in them unworthy members. But this would not too much buffet the faith of the apostles. They would simply say, that same Christ who raised up Lazarus can make Sardis and Pergamos and Thyatira yet to be a praise in the earth. Churches which seem to be corrupt and foul in the nostrils of the Most High may yet be made of brightness and glory and a sweet-smelling savour under him. So Spurgeon is emphasising here that both the trial itself strengthens faith and the deliverance from the trial reinforces our expectations of Christ's love and power. Christ considered that for the apostles to have strong faith was worth any cost. That's the value that our Lord Jesus puts upon faith. 
no matter what pangs it cost Martha and Mary, or in what grief it might involve himself or his apostles. And remember that Christ is intimately involved in this and profoundly distressed by what takes place, that they must bear it because the result was so exceedingly beneficial. Then Christ had an eye also, this is the second main point, to the good of the family. Now, this is important because the sisters suspected Christ's love and doubted Christ's power. Those are the two points at which they seem to have been tested. Now, the Lord, the Lord loved this family, and that's emphasized again and again. And Spurgeon picks it up that they were choice favorites of the Lord Jesus Christ. These were, he says, elect out of the elect. They were uh, particularly beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there were several special things then in the way that he dealt with them. First of all, they were three special favorites. And it was because of that that he sent them a special trial. Listen to what Spurgeon says here. When the Lord finds a saint whom he loves, loves much, he may spare other men trials and troubles, but he certainly will not this well-beloved one. The more beloved you are, the more of the rod you shall have. It is an awful thing. He means a, 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 a an overwhelming thing, a weighty thing, uh, an inspiring thing, an overwhelming reality to be a favourite of heaven. It is a thing to be sought after and to be rejoiced in. But remember, to be of the king's council chamber is a thing involving such work for faith that flesh and blood might shrink from the painful blessing. He's saying, in effect, that God takes such delight in some particular ones of his children that he will send upon them a particular trial in order that their faith may be particularly strengthened for the work he has them to do. You who are God's favourites then must not marvel at trials, but rather keep your door wide open for them, and when they come in, say, Hail, messenger of the king, the sound of your master's feet is behind you. You are welcome here, for your master sent you. And then this special trial was attended with a special visit. Christ came. Lazarus has died, but Christ is now in the house too. Oh, Christian, it shall be much for your comfort and for the strengthening of your faith if Christ comes to you in your troubles. I tell you, if you see no smiles in his face in your prosperity, you shall not be without them in your adversity. And then there was special fellowship. There was that sweet communion in the grief that they all shared, Christ Jesus weeping with those who wept. I witness that there is no fellowship with Christ so near and sweet, says our preacher, as that which comes to us when we are in deep trials. Christ will reveal his secrets to you when the world is against you and trials surround you. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. But they shall never have such discoveries of that secret and that covenant as when they most need it in the darkest and most trying times. It is then that there are special loves, special trials, special visits, and special fellowship. And soon then, special deliverance. In days to come, you will talk about these trials, and you will say, If I had only known what lay before me, sweet affliction, sweet affliction, thus to bring my Saviour near, is what I would have said. 
we we are so quick to complain at trials, so quick to mourn over our trials, so quick to try and avoid our trials. And Spurgeon is telling us that here God is pleased to put these things upon us because it is in this way that he uh, works this righteousness in us, that he uh, brings about this increase of faith, that he scours out the things that do not belong and he brings in that which ought to be there. I thank his name, he says, that he has done me the great favour to permit me to carry the heavy end of his cross. And it's the shortest way out of your troubles, as well as the most profitable spirit while you are in them, to say it is good for me that I have been afflicted. The Lord generally stays the rod, holds back his discipline when he finds his child receiving it as a favour. Again, I suggest to you that there's a certain robustness of spirit in Spurgeon's thinking on this theme that is sadly lacking in our hyper-sentimentalized and entitled society. And that brings Spurgeon to his third point, and he wants here the Holy Spirit particularly to bless the word that this trouble was also permitted for giving faith to others. His point here is that the way that trials come and the blessings that God gives to his people in trials, the work that he does by afflictions, is often a blessing to those who are outside the kingdom in bringing them to the faith that God's people already have, which is exercised by the trials. So afflictions often lead men to faith in Christ because they give space for thought. When a man has no trial, he just gets on with life. But when his life trembles like the even balance... When no one can tell which way it would turn, a man is forced to consider. Many a soul has been ploughed in the hospital and then has been sown in the sanctuary. Many a man has been first brought to God by the loss of a limb or by long sickness or by deep poverty. And I think perhaps even as Christians, we need to ask, do we consider peace with Christ, faith in the Lord Jesus that brings that hope and that joy a a good return on something as significant as the loss of a limb, long sickness or deep poverty? Would we, as it were, be willing to trade the one for the other? Then Spurgeon goes on, afflictions lead men to faith often by preventing sin. It keeps us back from temptation and from indulgence. If it weren't for the uh, the work of God in bringing us into trials and dangers, we might go on in all kinds of wickedness. Then we are compelled by trial to stand face to face with stern realities. We have to think about eternity. We have to consider death. Heaven and hell might come before our eyes. It makes us realise what is really the case. And then... Trials tend to make men believe in Christ when they are followed by deliverances. It's not, again, just the trial itself. Here's that division again uh, that Spurgeon introduced when he was speaking about the apostles, that on the one hand the trial itself does them good, and on the other the deliverance from the trial does good. And, says Spurgeon, the same can be true in the case of an unbeliever. Gratitude has been a means by which God has led many to put their trust in Jesus Christ. They have actually cried out to him in trouble. He has done them good, and they have been encouraged then to pray again. God helps once, 
and that in a very gracious way because he owes no sinner anything. And it stirs the heart and it draws out appreciation and it makes us think, if he's helped me once, will he not help me again? If he has perhaps spared my life, would he not also spare my soul? If God has been pleased to lift me from the grave, might he not also deliver me from the pit of hell? And Spurgeon puts these questions to his congregation. Think about how God has dealt with you. Think about the trials that you have suffered and consider not least the blessings of deliverance from them. And perhaps you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, yes, I've escaped from death. I've been sick and I could have died. I've been uh, in trouble and I've been brought out. I was at risk and I have been delivered. Says Spurgeon, I bless God there are many in this church who are led to seek the Lord through answers to prayer. God was gracious to them in their distress. His mercy listened to their prayer. The blessing came and the result is that they cry under him and will cry as long as they live. Now, this is Spurgeon's point, that if on this basis we can come to God, do we not come with hope? Can we not anticipate that any good that God has done to us is an indication of his readiness to bless those who deserve nothing? The one thing needful then for eternal life is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone might say, you cannot be perfect. No, I know you can't. You'll say, I have many sins. I've done much that is wrong. True, most true. But the believer in Christ has his sins forgiven. You know the story, says Spurgeon. Christ came down from heaven and took his people's sins upon his own shoulders. And when God came forth to smite the sinner, justice said, Where is he? And Christ came and stood in the sinner's place. God's sword went through the Saviour's heart. Why? That it might never cut nor wound the heart of those for whom Jesus died. So did he die for you? He did, if you believe in him. Your faith will be to you the evidence that Christ was substitute for you. And oh, if Christ suffered for you, you cannot suffer. If God punished Christ, he will never punish you. If Jesus Christ paid your debts, you are free. Is this then the result of your affliction? Has it brought you to Jesus Christ? If so, Christ may well say, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to stop the trouble to the intent that you may believe. You see how Spurgeon then handles this text. It's a, a great framing of the whole sermon from the, the text at the front end to the text at the back end, Christ saying, I am glad. What initially may have sounded very harsh or confusing or unreasonable begins to make sense when? when we understand the importance, the significance of faith in God. There is nothing more important than our faith in Jesus Christ as Saviour, our trust in him as the provision from God for our sins. Spurgeon looks at this question, weighs these things in the light of eternity, and says in effect that this language of the Lord Jesus, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, teaches us to value whatever brings faith either into our hearts or to a higher pitch in our hearts. And if that is trial, 
even trials of the kind that he has described in the course of this sermon, then we should value that by which God in his mercy is pleased to draw us to himself and closer to himself. I hope you find that a wonderful comfort. It, it It's absolutely stunning, really, that, that God should take such care of us and have such regard for us that he would work in such love and power with such wisdom that he would turn even our trials into means of bringing us to himself. So may this teach us then to think of these things in these terms and to esteem very highly God in his kindness and then perhaps even reasonably, thoughtfully and humbly to welcome our trials as the messengers of God by which our faith is exercised. I found my heart blessed by considering this sermon. It's come to me at a good time as I as I read it for the first time and as I've studied it over again. It's reminded me to trust in God more entirely, to put my faith in the Lord Jesus more readily, and I trust that it will make me I know I'll forget I know I'll I'll still try and avoid the trials. I know I'll still have a tendency, a sinful tendency to complain. I know that I might wish it were otherwise. But I hope I'll remember these things and it might prove God's means of leading me in a better way. And perhaps you too. God willing then will come next week if the Lord spares us to consider yet another sermon, another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. It's a beautiful sermon entitled Preparation for Revival. It's Sermon 597 and it's our featured sermon in a week when we're reading from 591 through to 597. So I do hope you'll join us on that occasion and that you will be blessed by this and by further podcasts. And if you would like a chance to do so, please read back or listen back over the sermons and the podcasts that we've already covered. If you want to know more, as I've said, you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon or you can sign up for a weekly newsletter at mediagratii.org slash podcasts where you'll get the featured sermon as a PDF and a little note to tell you what you're reading. Thank you for joining us and I hope you'll do so again in the future. God bless. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.